This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Jonathan McGarrian, a host on New Books in History, a podcast on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Michael Hattam about his book, Past and Prologue, Politics and Memory in the American Revolution, published by Yale University Press in 2020. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, So maybe you can start us off by walking us through the basic contention of the book. Why is it important to understand how the revolutionary generation thought about history? And how is it distinct from the understanding of those involved in other famous revolutions? Yeah, so I mean, the, 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 the book, the, the book is primarily about the role of changing historical memories, uh, over the course of the revolutionary era. Um, and so I primarily look at this, uh, this central question, really, of national identity and the American Revolution. And the, that, that, the question there is really, how did colonists go from thinking of themselves as British subjects to thinking of themselves as American citizens? And uh, before 1760, you know, most British colonists thought of the British past as as their history, and they held that past in common with their fellow colonists. Um, but by 1800, that's really no longer the case, and that seems to me to be a significant transformation. Um, how do how does a society go about discarding a previously shared past or history and create a new one to replace it? Um, and how do they do that? You know, amidst the upheaval and instability of revolution, and so. Uh, the book really tells the story of this transformation uh, primarily through uh, three processes, which is basically how colonists began to reconsider their relationship to the British past, how they created a newly shared colonial past for the first time, uh, and then how later on they created a what I call a deep national past or a sort of uh, sense of American antiquity. And the book basically argues that these changing historical memories are are an important part of understanding the cultural origins of the American Revolution and the origins of American national identity. Yeah, and uh, the book, as you just alluded to, invokes the notion that fashioning a historical narrative is a crucial element of fashioning a national identity. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the frameworks that you adopt for thinking through the concept of nation and nationality and how 
that was a factor in the formation of sort of national consciousness in the uh, early republic. Yeah. So, I mean, the part of what's interesting about the story here is that, and and part of what's interesting about um, the 18th century to me generally, is that it's this real liminal moment, right? We're seeing the, the, the really the, 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 the beginnings of the creation of the modern nation state. Uh, and at the same time, we're also seeing revolutions in, um, in historical practice. And we're seeing revolutions in, um, in, in print, and which is one of the primary ways in which these uh, narratives that we'll talk about get circulated. Um, well, I, early on in my project, I came across a, a quote by a historian named Ronald Suni, and, and he said that nations are congealed histories. Uh, and and that really stuck with me early on, and so it's it really sort of framed the way that I that I approached the project. Uh, you know, a, a part of fashioning a nation state because nation states um, nation states don't come out of nothing, right? They have to come out of somewhere. But also, there is something that there's there are there are cultural processes that have to happen to bind them together, especially early on. Um, and the creation of historical narratives was was central to that process. Um, we see that in in England, especially, and then later on in uh, uh, in North America with the, with the uh, New United States. Um, and so, I've sort of taken this idea that I, that's called history culture uh, or historical culture. It's sometimes called, and it, it's mostly been used by European anthropologists and not so much historians, and it really hasn't never been applied to the American context. And basically, history culture is uh, kind of a, a fancy academic term for uh, trying to understand how uh, a society as a whole understands the past and how they understand the relationship between the past and the present. And and it's it basically takes into account all uh, representations and uses of the past in a given society. So for, in my case, I look at, on the first half of the book, I look at the, uh, the use of, uh, historical narratives and historical interpretations in the political writings of the imperial crisis. Uh, and then in the second half, uh, I look at, I, as Americans cultural production expands, I look at, um, representations of the past in, in cultural productions like poetry, fiction, art, children's textbooks, and almanacs. Uh, and so it's it's a, a way to go beyond just looking at strictly historical works or what I call histories of uh, to try to get a better sense of how people in the 18th century, how Americans in the 18th century understood their relationship to the past and how it changed over the course of the revolutionary era. So one question I have following up on that, um, just because I was going to ask you more about history, culture in in general, in the, let's say, um, you know, first half of the 18th century, to what extent would you say that the history culture of um, what would become the United States and uh, that of the British mainland are uh identical to each other. So yeah, sort of like what's the interplay between those? Yeah. So 
so the, the history culture that colonists have in the first half of the 18th century is very much part of their inheritance, right, from the earlier generations of, uh, of English settlers. Um, but there are significant changes that occurred um, in Britain, especially that did not happen in the colonies. And I talk about one of these in uh, chapter two of the book, and it's something that I call the authority of the past. Uh, colonists and, and Britons alike you know, lived in a common law culture, right? Uh, which is to say that the, the 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 legal system of the common law was not just um, was was not limited to the legal system. It sort of transcended that and had and had its own sort of um, cultural power. And and what's important about the common law uh, system and culture uh, is that it's founded on precedent and uh, custom. And tradition, right? So the longer that something exists, whether it's a law or um, a religious practice or social practice, uh, the longer that exists, the more authority is invested in it, right? And what happens is that colonists held on to this idea of the authority of the past. They continued into the 18th century to give great weight uh, to the past generally, and to these ideas of, of custom and precedent. Uh, but over that same time in, in Britain, uh, th- that aspect of their history culture started to diminish. So that when you get to the point of, say, like the, the middle of the 18th century, uh, Britain has just uh, successfully concluded the Seven Years' War, it has. Um, it now has the largest empire in the world, uh, and you know part of the what what sets off the imperial crisis is a set of reforms that are undertaken by the new administration uh, and the new ministry in England to um, to sort of get a grip on this new uh, and large uh, empire, and so. Part of how I think about the imperial crisis in the book is that, you know, Parliament in in the 1760s begins to pass a a series of unprecedented types of legislation, right? The Stamp Act, the Townsend Acts, these are in in some sense direct taxes, right? And this is something that Parliament had never done before. And the colonists largely protested it on those terms, right? But those arguments were not convincing uh, to Parliament and, and indeed to many Britons themselves. Um, in in their mind, it seems they they seem to have thought quite logically that you know we're in this unprecedented situation of now having this uh, greatly expanded empire that we now have to figure out how to uh, manage and administer. Um, so if you know, if that takes unprecedented legislation, then that would make sense. Um, of course, the the colonists did not see it that way. They they uh, they found, I think, a, a a significant anxiety in the fact that Parliament was acting in all kinds of unprecedented ways. Partly because this idea of the authority of the past really allowed colonists to. Uh, have a sense of stability 
and and exp and, and an ability to develop expectations about the uh, the present, the near future. Uh, that you know that their relationship with with Parliament or with the mother country wouldn't just you know radically change, and of course that's that's what was happening uh, in the 1760s. It's really not not unlike what I think you know many Americans have experienced over uh, the last four years, where when you have a leadership uh, government. That is, you know, willing to do things that um, previous governments were not. That can create a real sort of sense of, you know, psychological anxiety and and instability. And I think that that's uh, a really important cultural context for understanding uh, the imperial crisis. Yeah, and maybe to uh, help suss out some of the different ways that um, people approached history. Uh, You mentioned that there were several paradigms of historical time floating around in the 18th century. And, um, you know, one of them is cyclical, for example. And you make the case that not only did they coexist with each other, but their boundaries were um, often porous. So maybe you could just expand on that a little. And if you have any examples ready to hand, uh, that would be great as well. Yes. So, I mean, there are three sort of primary ways that uh, people in the 18th century thought about um, uh, history, basically. Um, and and the first way that they thought about it, one of the ways was uh, was a sort of millennial type view um, of the past. And, uh, you know, that millennialism was this sort of... Uh, a scatological Christian belief, right? That comes from the book of revelations. And it's the idea that, that, uh, Jesus Christ would establish a 1000 year reign on earth prior to the last judgment. Uh, and, you know, part of what's inherent in that idea is that, um, that God governed the world, right. According to some divine plan. Um, and, and, that the deity actively intervenes sort of in, in human affairs, right? Uh, the second, and this is a more secular understanding of history in the 18th century, was the, the cyclical theory of history that you mentioned. And this kind of goes back to um, uh, Plato and Aristotle. Uh, and, and the idea there is that <clears throat> um, government exists in three pure forms, right? Right. Uh, monarchy, aristocracy, and democracy. And the idea is that if any government that was made up of just one of them would automatically, would inevitably, I should say, inevitably devolve uh, into its sort of um, degraded counterpart, right? So monarchy would devolve into tyranny, aristocracy would devolve into oligarchy, and democracy would devolve into anarchy, right? And the idea there is that... um, you know the idea that this is the idea of balanced government or mixed government that the the way to avoid that is sort of to combine the aspects of the three of them and the other important part of the cyclical theory is that uh, it understood the the sort of ebb and flow of the the rise and fall of empires and civilizations um, as effectively morally driven right so historians uh, 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 societies that were 
uh, would, that were hungry and sort of uh, on the on the rise, um, they would reach a peak at some point, and then they would inevitably begin to uh, to decline. Um, one of the ideas that they that people in the 18th century had about how do you about how do you stop or forestall um, this decline was the idea of first principles. Right, you go back to the society's first principles, and that's how you sort of stave off this inevitable decline. Um, you know, that's that that idea is still sort of embedded in American culture, right? Um, in in some sense, the 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 Tea Party of the early uh, 2010s is is an expression of that. The the legal doctrine of originalism is is kind of an expression of that, really. Um, and the idea was that. Uh, the way that it's morally driven is that once a society reaches its peak, you know, people are no longer uh, hungry. They become, uh, and they're no longer frugal. And so they, you know, they become sort of uh, spendthrift. They start to care more about their own self-interest than about the public good. Uh, and the the third idea is the idea of progress and of thinking of history as linear, as a, as a, story of linear progress. Um, that's very much a sort of uh, enlightenment type of idea. And so it, it's not something that really uh, begins to get wider purchase until much later in the 18th century. Um, but uh, certainly millennialism and the cyclical theory, they, they would seem to be at odds with one another. But so one of the through points of these, um, of these different views of history, especially the millennial and the cyclical, which would seem to be uh, um, at odds with one another, is this idea of morality. Um, and so, you know, millennialists basically saw, uh, you know, God's judgment for their lack of morality um, as, as, what bring, as what would bring about this, um, uh, this, this period of, of the, the last thousand years of the reign and and in the cyclical theory, the idea is that you know moral decay is what brings about the decline of an empire, right? So there are, uh, I, I would say that you know the the millennial view of history was not especially common in the 18th century. It's it's it in its own way it's cyclical. It sort of has its ups and downs. Um, it becomes it, it sort of comes back into fashion a little bit in the 1740s during the Great Awakening. Um, but it's not a it's not a widely held consistent uh, perspective in in that sense. Really, I think you know the cyclical view is is the most predominant view of the way that history worked in the 18th century. And I found a in a, a, in the John Adams papers uh, a, a an essay that he a draft of an essay that he had written in the 1760s. Uh, during the imperial crisis, where he basically describes the cyclical view um, that I just described, uh, and and then there's a note that he wrote on the draft many years later, well into the 19th century, when he's um, in his latest years, um, where he where he notates in the margin, uh, "This is the creed of my whole life." Right. So that cyclical view was really central, and if you think about how colonists were trying to make sense of what was happening with parliament undertaking all these unprecedented actions in the 1760s. One of the ways that they thought about that was 
that it was a sign that England was now on, you know, it was at least now beginning or on its way um, uh, to its inevitable decline, right? It's and and that there was a moral decay that was happening in England after the the conclusion of the Seven Years' War, and colonists' primary evidence for that was Parliament's, you know, willingness to basically usurp the authority of the past. They saw that as a sort of sign of moral decay. Um, so they very much were thinking about, you know, the not just the long span of history, um, but, you know, also applying that to their uh, current um, circumstances. Great. And this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yeah, maybe we can dig in a little bit to this period, right? Because you temporally, the book kind of looks at the... Uh, you know, the first half of the 18th century, then there's the imperial crisis, um, and then there's the revolution and early republic. And these seem to be kind of temporal areas of significant development in the, uh, the, the historical thought. So, yeah, can you talk to us a little bit about the kind of changes in his, his historiography, historical thinking that are wrought by the onset of the imperial crisis? Um, you know, I know that's kind of like a big question, but maybe some of the things that you think are most salient um, and that you devote most time to in the book. Yeah. So I think that there's, there's two things that, that uh, especially during, during the, the course of the crisis, there are two significant changes that happen in the way that colonists think about the past. Um, and the first is that they, begin to reconsider their relationship to the Glorious Revolution, right? The Glorious Revolution was a really foundational uh, event in, in the minds and in the, the civic identity of, uh, of all Britons in the 18th century, in, including colonists. Um, and part of, part of the reason for that, and I should say, this is, it's really not wholly unlike um, the, the role that Say the American Revolution plays, you know, in in the civic identity of of many Americans today, uh, and has for a very long time. You know, this idea of a foundational event that had a certain set of principles built into it. Um, those are the first principles, and you know that those should be the guiding principles of the nation going forward. For the Glorious Revolution, uh, you know. There's, of course, there's the uh, it secured the Protestant secession in England, right? Um, uh, it it produced um, uh, legal toleration in England, but it also created the circumstances uh, in which England could grow to become first Britain and then the most uh, successful empire by the 1760s. And part of the idea there was that it's the Glorious Revolution that created first England and then and then Great Britain as a constitutional monarchy, right? The Stuart monarchs had reigned throughout the 17th century um, uh, and had taken a lot of 
uh, liberties with their prerogative. Um, but the the question of the relationship between Parliament and and the monarchy was effectively settled in 1688 with the Glorious Revolution uh, and settled in favor of Parliament. So Parliament's prerogative was enlarged. The king's was um, diminished. And part of the idea there is that this restored a, a, a sense of balance to the English constitution, right? That had that had effectively been out of whack uh, throughout the 17th century because of the, the Stuarts. But in the 1760s, the, what colonists come to think about the Glorious Revolution is not that it had restored some kind of balance, um, but that it had basically just uh, reversed the situation so that Parliament now was in a position where it could act as arbitrarily, you know, as any 17th century monarch. And that, you know, when, co- when Parliament passed these types of unprecedented legislation, um, colonists had really no redress. They had no way uh, to redress their grievances because the only way to overturn an act of Parliament was, uh, you know, if it could only be done by a subsequent Parliament, right? The king could not do that. Uh, and so basically whatever Parliament did was by definition constitutional. And so uh, colonists began to see the Glorious Revolution as basically having created the situation that ultimately arose in the 1760s. You might say, well, why does it take that long? Um, and it's partly because, you know, for the first half of the 18th century, um, uh, the British ministry is primarily concerned with pursuing um, a number of wars with France and Spain. Uh, and it's only in the 1760s after the Seven Years' War that they uh, that they undertake, you know, this sort of systematic imperial reform that would include the the North American colonies. So this throws this, you know, this foundational event of their civic identity into into real question, right? In the middle of this, uh, in the middle of this conflict, and and you know, there's another sort of uh, contemporary analog to that. In in that, you know, many Americans right now are uh, going through a sort of process of rethinking the American Revolution and what it what it means uh, to our contemporary society whether or not it should have the the place in our uh, political culture that it has had for so long. Uh, you know, the, the, so there's a, there's a sort of contemporary analog there. Uh, the, uh, the, second, the second key part of uh, the second key change during the imperial crisis happens uh, late, late in the crisis, sort of 1773 and later, when there's a real transition away from making arguments about the past. And I, and I should say that, you know, the, the political writings of the 1760s and 1770s are filled with historical uh, disquisitions, you might say, um, historical interpretations and narratives uh, that frame the arguments that they're making. Um, and most of those have to do with the history of the settlement of the colonies and the, and the circumstances surrounding that. But these political writings are full of historical interpretations. Um, and because colonists are arguing from, from this idea of the authority of the past and because Britons are just not responding to that argument whatsoever, um, it, it created a sense in, 
in many colonists, I think of uh, a burgeoning sense of cultural difference with Britons, right? For much of the 18th century, colonists are becoming more British, right? As, as time goes on from by, by the mid century, by the end of the seven years war, colonists probably had never been uh, more British uh, culturally speaking. Um, but, you know, I think that this, this divergence with their, with their two history cultures and the way that the imperial crisis really highlighted it, um, be, creates a, a, the the beginnings of of a sense of cultural difference. Maybe c- colonists think thought maybe maybe we weren't as British as we thought we were, and one of the ways that that manifests in the uh, political rhetoric, at least, uh, is the adoption of natural law arguments. Right. I mean, I think a lot of people uh, who have done reading on this tend to. I think assume a little bit that natural law arguments were a part of revolutionary rhetoric from the beginning, um, but that's absolutely not what I found in in the sources. What I found was actually that they uh, it there's a turn to natural law arguments that occurs after 1773, and part of the reason for that, I argue in the book, is that. For you know, seven eight years, colonists are making these arguments uh, from the authority of the past, relying on ideas like precedent and custom, and really getting nowhere with either Parliament or the the British public. Um, and so, the they they move their rhetoric towards this idea of natural law, natural rights, uh, partly as a way of. Uh, of transcending the British past, right? If the, it allowed them to basically continue to argue the same principles uh, that they were arguing before and basing in in the British past and in their own colonial history, um, uh, but but they didn't have to rely on on either of those, right? Because natural rights are universal, so they basically universalized their rhetoric. Um, by stopping talking about um, the British past and instead focusing on this idea of natural law, uh, so basically they 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 kept the same arguments and they just attributed them, you know they uh, they attributed them basically to, to to nature or to God, however however people uh, different people thought about it, but they basically universalized their principles through this natural law rhetoric and it was a way of sort of transcending not just the British past, but also temporarily, at least uh, for rhetorical purposes, you know, the authority of the past that they had, um, that they had clung to so heavily. Great. Yeah. And to move us forward temporally a little bit, um, you devote a chapter to, uh, to the claim that the early Republic saw a broad expansion of history culture both quantitatively and qualitatively. So I was wondering if you could give us a flavor of, of those changes as well. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, it, it's important to understand that in the period after the war, at least in the 1780s, beginning in the 1780s, the 1790s, and, and into the first decade of the 19th century, it's, a, it's really a, a time of, uh, of unprecedented uh, development in cultural production for the Americans. It's this is the period when we get the first 
real uh, American poetry, the first American uh, fiction, which happens to be historical fiction. Um, it's the, the you know the uh, the real birth of of American painting, uh, and just um, really American letters generally. <clears throat> and uh, what I found was that uh, you know history was really central to the development of all of those sort of genres of cultural production uh, in in the late 18th century. Um, so, you know, I mean, if we think about, you know, the expansion of print, print undergoes a rapid expansion after the revolution, um, spreading, you know, uh, well into the, the uh, territories. Uh, and as printing expands, you know, the reading public was expanding, uh, so we see what we we see the the birth of the American magazine. There are a few examples of magazines from the colonial period, but they're very short lived. Um, but in the 1780s, 1790s, um, you know, there are dozens of magazines that are established um, and that are explicitly American magazines. Like they're going to be, you know, they're in, the intention is to for them to circulate throughout the throughout the country, right? Not just in one location. And these uh, printers, who were also the editors of these magazines, you know, the, they needed content, and so you know, many of the the, the most well known uh, uh, historians of the time uh, contributed uh, often to these types of uh, magazines. So, and that's one example. Uh, one of the other examples I talk about in the book is. Um, uh, uh, the, the the process through which John Trumbull's famous revolutionary paintings emerge, right? Uh, I think it's one of the, one of the things I think many people don't realize is that you know if we think about his most famous paintings like uh, the Declaration of Independence, um, the uh, Battle of Bunker Hill, right? Um, the the resignation of Washington. Um, we think of those as in, in, I think many people think of them in the sense of the versions that you can see in the Capitol Rotunda, right? But uh, he actually painted uh, at least two versions of each of those um, because they were first originally conceived by him in the 1780s with some prodding from Thomas Jefferson, actually, um, uh, for him to sell as a sort of set of uh, prints of engraved prints, um, you know, and and so I talk a little bit in in that chapter, sort of about this intersection between the emerging uh, culture and and this idea of commerce that sort of goes along with it. Um, but it's also in this period that we see the the first you know uh, historical institutions, the first historical societies, uh, the first natural history museums. Um, so there's a there's there's a there's a number of layers uh, and 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 spheres within uh, the culture of the early national period where this sort of expansion is happening and this cultural expansion is happening and history is really you know a, a, a key part of of each of those. Yeah, and I think that touches on something that I really loved about the book because it's both about the. Yeah, the content of historical work, but also about the sort of mode of production and the varieties of 
um, instantiation of historical mindedness in this period. And it leads to a really um, very colorful and, and rich discussion of a lot of different um, surprising notes and elements. And one, in addition to what you've just um, talked about, you have a, a nice discussion about the sort of informal network of historical thinkers and their sort of mini republic of letters that they have with each other. Um, yeah. And so I was wondering if you wanted to talk at all about that group and and what they did, uh, because I found the um, discussion in the book riveting. And there's even um, a very fun little, uh, it's not really a graph, but it's a, a picture of the, the linkages between them. Yeah. So, I mean, as I was doing the research for the early national period, I mean, you know, certain figures kept popping up and, you know, it wasn't always historians. Um, and, and so I started to track correspondence between individuals and, but specifically uh, correspondence that, uh, that was about one of the, the main um uh, functions of this sort of informal historical network that I talk about in the chapter. And so those, the functions that this network ended up serving, uh, for people who were historians or who were antiquarians, which who are people who collected sort of historical artifacts, but, but didn't actually write history. Uh, it included, uh, f- uh some famous essayists like, uh, Benjamin Rush. The network also included, um, a few some a few poets uh, some painters like John Trumbull uh and included also uh printers and included a number of you know the of the new nation's uh, most well-known politicians um and uh the the functions that this informal network served especially for historians um was uh one of the one of the uh, one of the functions was that uh historians would uh would correspond with other historians and with antiquarians uh, about uh, primary sources, right? So if you're a historian in the 18th century, uh, there are no historical societies where you go to do research. There are no, um, you know, there are no archives really. Um, so, so to find historical sources was, was a, a significant part of being a historian in the 18th century. Um, Jeremy Belknap, who's one of the was one of the most respected historians of the period, you know, used, uh, wrote about you know digging through old church basements looking for primary sources. If you were looking for some source for, about you know, say, uh, uh, let's say Connecticut in the 17th century, you would look for um, uh, descendants of some. Uh, of some government figure from the time and hope that maybe they still had their papers, you know, but on top of finding sources, once you found a source, um, you had to transcribe it. You had to uh, reproduce it because you, people weren't going to let you take their, their personal property, even if it is, even if you deem it a primary source. Um, So a big part of the work of, of, uh, compiling primary sources was first finding them, but then also transcribing them. And these historians and antiquarians used this their correspondence network to get information about that, right? Because you don't want to spend time, precious time, looking for some primary source or or even transcribing it if 
someone else has already done that, right? And so they would correspond with one another to say, oh, you know, I recently transcribed this or I recently found that. Um, I have instances of them uh, sharing their transcriptions with one another through through the mail. I mean, their only copy of of you know is quite long transcriptions. You know, so uh, they were they were committed to the the sharing of of primary sources and the knowledge of primary sources. <clears throat> um, one of the other ways that they used this network was to get feedback on their writing, almost like some kind of you know, 18th century writers group, you know, they would send each other drafts of their work and look for feedback. Um, And one of the most exciting parts of the research for this book was that I found a manuscript copy of the first six chapters of David Ramsey's History of the American Revolution, which was uh, the most popular history of the American Revolution until George Bancroft. And uh, I found it was unidentified in the John Jay papers at the New York Historical Society. And I found it and I was trying to figure out what it was. And ultimately, I was able to find out what it was. And the thing that was interesting about it is that when I compared this draft, which was sent around in 1786, I later found correspondence from Ramsey where he described having sent this six copies of this manuscript around. Um, this is the only known extant copy. But what's really interesting about it is that in the draft, the first chapter talks a lot about, you know, the history of England in the 17th century, like the civil wars and, and the restoration. Uh, but by the time that the book gets published, most of that is taken out and it's replaced with these individual histories of the colonies, you know. And it it at that point, I mean, at that point I thought that was early on in the project. And I thought that I would only go up to 1776, but I realized that Ramsey's manuscript, you know, sort of symbolized this, uh, this broader question that I ended up, you know, really focusing on, which was this, you know, this shift in, in historical thinking, this shift from thinking that the British past was, you know, was their past to, to creating a new American past. And that's sort of, manifested in the changes between the the manuscript and and the document uh, so uh, and then the, the final way that they well I shouldn't say the final but one of the other ways that they used the network was um, to find sources especially official government sources they would write to these politicians like George Washington or John Adams or Thomas Jefferson uh, and I have lots of instances of Washington Adams Jefferson really going out of their way to assist the work of, you know, these, the, the first individuals who were attempting to write histories of the revolution, uh, Washington let William Gordon, who actually wrote the first, technically the first history of the revolution, uh, let him stay at his house for two weeks at Mount Vernon, uh, to copy his correspondence from the, during the war. Um, we have lots of other instances like that. And a part of that is it's significant because, these politicians understood that in the tenuous sort of political circumstances of the 1780s, uh, they understood the value of establishing, you know, a, a national historical narrative for this new nation that was still very much, uh, uh, you know, 13 disparate states, right? In in the 1780s, the, the term the United States is a plural term. It's not a singular 
term. Uh, and then I would say that the final way that they used the network, which was to basically uh, was to get information about printers and printing. So, you know, I have instances in the book where they're, they're a few historians are, are corresponding with one another about which printers type they like. And, uh, oh, I like the type in this pamphlet who printed that, you know, how much does this printer in your city charge, you know, for, for printing the, for printing a book. Uh, so it's all, all ways of, of supporting the work of historical practice. And what's significant about it is that many of the individuals who are in, involved in the creation of the first historical societies, like the Massachusetts Historical Society, the New York Historical Society, the American Antiquarian Society, all of these are created uh, in the 1790s, 18, and 1800s, and, and then uh, by 1812. Uh, and all the three individuals who were central to the establishment of those societies, but many others who were on the board, um, you know, were members of this informal historical network. And if we think about the institutions that they established, um, they very much, you know, were created in a way to sort of serve the same purposes that this network had, right? So these uh, Massachusetts Historical Society, these new historical societies were to serve as repositories for primary sources where they would be protected, but they would also uh, be made available to any historians that wanted to use them. They would serve as meeting places uh, for historians um, to get, say, to get feedback on their work. Um, they all, they all had uh, honorary members from outside of their own specific state, right? In the sense that these were meant to be national institutions, uh, and you know, they began as a. a, a a series of of publishing collections volumes, you know that that some historians still use today, um, the collections of the Massachusetts Historical Society, where they would pull very interesting primary sources and then publish them. And part of the idea there was that by publishing them, uh, that was the easiest way to multiply copies of the primary sources so that they could be preserved in case of, you know, fire or or war, for that matter. Um, and so, yeah, so, so the, the functions that this network served really, I think, uh, played a, played an important role in defining, uh, the, the first historical institutions in this country. And that's important because many early American historians and, and American historians of, of any period, um, were still, uh, very much relying on those, those same institutions, uh, for, for those same purposes. Well, there are a lot of different uh, other avenues that we could pursue because this book is incredibly rich. But maybe um, to close us out, you could talk a little bit about something you alluded to towards the beginning of our conversation, which was the sort of end phase of your analysis in which you see historical thinkers begin to try to fashion something resembling a deep antiquity for uh, the new America. Yeah, so... I mean, I talk in the book about how after the war is over, colonists begin to um, reimagine their shared colonial past in in a way that's even different from how they began to talk about it in the 1760s. And uh, one of the ways that they did that was by making it sort of uh, uh, 
by making the past look more like the present, right? So in a sense, they're looking at their their past through the through the lens of the present. Whereas, you know, the way I sort of describe the authority of the past, it's it seems much more like in the 1760s, their colonists are sort of looking at their uh, their present through the lens of the past, you know, and that's an important change. And this whole project that I talk about in the second half of the book of creating the first national historical narratives um, and the first national history for this new republic, um, a big part of the the goals behind that is is this broader project, I think, of, of trying to establish a sense of cultural independence from Great Britain, right? Uh, declaring political independence in 1776 is one thing. Winning political independence in 1783 is another thing, um, you know, but for the nation to, for the, or for these new states to become some kind of cohesive nation um, was going to require um, uh, developing a sense of cultural independence from Britain. Uh, and this is important for, you know, then for the national historical narrative, and it's important for the development of early, of early national identity, right? Um, and so one of the ways that they did this is through this idea that I call the, um, the deep national past. Um, so uh, there are a number of ways that they go about doing this, but basically what they're doing is trying to create a, a sense of, of uh, a sense of a past for the, for the new nation that goes back, uh, you know, well beyond say uh, 1607, right. Um, that, that, that would transcend their historical connection to Britain. And now I don't mean this in a, in a literal way, though there are some examples. So like, for example, it's in 1792 that Americans effectively adopt Christopher Columbus as the discoverer of America, even though he never set foot on the North American continent. And that was largely the work of many of the individuals in this historical network uh, and the new Massachusetts Historical Society um, to, to perpetuate this idea. Um, in you know, before the revolution, if you asked a colonist who discovered America, they they might say uh, John Cabot or Henry Hudson, right? Because those those men had sailed for England. Um, but Columbus becomes a very useful discoverer of America in the post war period, uh, precisely because he did not sail for England, right? So if Columbus is the discoverer of America, it gives the new nation a uh, uh, and and it, and the ability to sort of transcend its historical origins in in the British Empire and and just in English history generally, uh, but they also do it in uh, in other ways. In so part of the ways that they do this is through um, uh, sort of epic or epic poetry and and kind of mythical symbolism. If we think of the idea of Columbia and the symbolism of of Columbia. Uh, you know, that's sort of the American counterpart to, you know, Britain's Albion or Britannia, right? Which are these sort of ancient um, connotations. Uh, and then one of the other important key ways that they did this was through uh, their interest in and the sort of nationalization of natural history, right? Which is basically the history of the land 
and by co-opting the history of the land and include that includes I talk about this in the book how they co-opted uh, specifically indigenous pasts right for their own national purposes um, through natural history museums and 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 a variety of other ways um, but basically you know they they co-opt this long history of the land which in which is tied to the indigenous populations who lived on it, uh, but are very, at the same time, uh, in a sense, in a sense, dismissive of them, but also in a sense, not. Um, and what that basically uh, produces is, and I is this idea that that gains currency quite quickly by the end of the 18th century, and then remained well through the 19th century, which is the idea that the the virtues of the new nation, um, its republicanism, right? Uh, specifically, its its sense of uh, its 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 concern for liberty and um, uh, and virtue, that that those those ideas were effectively embedded in the land itself, right? Um, and in, and in doing that, they're basically co opting indigenous pasts for their own national purposes, right? Um, but this idea that, uh, you know, republicanism and liberty and virtue were, Im- were embedded in, in the soil of North America, uh, you know, became a, 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 a key part of arguments that later in the 19th century would be used to uh, – along with the memory of Columbus to, to justify manifest destiny. Well, it's an incredibly uh, important book, um, very readable, enjoyable. And um, as we discussed a couple of times throughout the interview, there are a lot of parallels to some of the tectonic political changes that are going around us today. The book is called Past and Prologue. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me.